0: invite you to take your bibles and turn with me to the very last book in the bible the book of revelation we're going to be looking today at the first seven verses of chapter two as we continue on in our study revelation chapter two i'm going to read from verse one down through verse seven on what version you have of the Bibles that you're looking at, uh, many of you may notice that these words are written in red, and that's to indicate that these are Jesus' words. If you'll remember last week, we looked at uh, this vision that John got of Jesus coming and speaking, and uh, that vision continues here as we move into chapter 2, and uh, we hear from Jesus himself as he addresses the church in Ephesus. So I invite you to listen as I read to you from Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Yet this you have, you hate the the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that the same Holy Spirit that guided John's thoughts and minds and hand to write these words down would be present here in our midst even now. Help us open our eyes, open our hearts to see wonderful things from this portion of your word. Reveal yourself to us as the God of truth and the God of love. And help us, Father, to be more and more conformed to your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a simple question. What's more important? Truth or love? What's more important? Being doctrinally orthodox and sound and being unwilling to compromise on truth. Or loving people? Now I hope that you don't like that question. About 150 years after John wrote the words that we just read. There was a significant period of time of intense persecution taking place. uh, For Christians living in even that very area in which he was writing. We know of. Uh, the persecution happening under the Roman Emperor Decius. There was torture, there was mass killing of Christians. There was a lot of pressure for Christians to give allegiance to the Roman Empire and specifically to the Roman Emperor. And some gave in. Some who professed the name of Christ, who were a part of the church, gave in and went through various rituals to give allegiance to the Roman Emperor. Over a period of time, the persecution began to wane at times and some of those people that were referred to as the lapsed decided they wanted to come back to the church. And the church had to decide how to respond. There was one of the main leaders in the church in Rome, a priest by the name of Novatian, And... He had a very strict view. His view was that they had to defend, the church had to defend the truth. They had to be rigorous. They had to be pure about truth. And so no one who had given allegiance and sacrifice to false gods and to the emperor himself should be allowed to come back into the church. There would be no compromise in the truth of God. There was another leader in the church in North Africa, in the area of Carthage. His name was Novatus. And Novatus had a different opinion. He argued for the complete acceptance of the lapsed, even without any sense of sorrow or repentance. They should be welcomed back into the church so that we show them love. There were groups that followed both of those leaders, uh, becoming known by the names of uh, those two leaders themselves. There was a bishop in the area named Cyprian and, and Cyprian was known for his theological mind and his pastoral skills. and Cyprian, as the bishop said that both both Novatian and Novatus were wrong. That the solution was not to discard love for the sake of doctrinal purity or to discard doctrinal orthodoxy for the love of sinners, but that the solution was to maintain both truth and love. He called a council of the church in order to come together to discuss it and to decide how to respond. And the council essentially agreed with Cyprian's position. neither Novatian nor Novatus followed the lead of Cyprian or the council. And both of those groups eventually died out after several generations. What's more important? Truth or love? It's a false dichotomy, isn't it? Both are essential. Both are necessary. To have one to the exclusion of the other won't last. It won't survive. And we know that that's true not just because Cyprian said it in the third century, but because Jesus himself said it to his church. We're moving into a section of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3 where Jesus speaks to these seven specific churches that we've been talking about in chapter 1. Chapters 2 and 3, there are seven messages to the seven churches. And in each one, Jesus addresses the, the angel, the guardian angel of each of the churches. And through that angel, addresses the people of those churches. And today, what we're looking at is Jesus addressing the church in Ephesus about both truth and love. Before we jump in to see what Jesus said to them, let's get a little bit of context about the city of Ephesus and the church in Ephesus. The city of Ephesus during that time was one of the major cities in Asia Minor. It was really a gateway between the Roman Empire and Asia Minor. During the time that John was writing, about 250,000 people lived in and around the city. It was a thriving city. It was a thriving economy. It was the center of Four major trade routes. There was a a, a notable harbor that was there. This was a busy and a popular place. It was well known, perhaps more than anything else, for a specific temple that it had, a temple to the goddess Artemis. In fact, the temple that stood there was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There was an enormous focus in the town of Ephesus on the worship of Roman and Greek false gods. The city was also known for wealth and for power, for fame, for culture, as well as being a place of immorality and where the practice of black magic and superstition took place, and of course, idolatry. Now, if you think about that kind of a city with that kind of... Influence and that kind of darkness, wouldn't you think that would be a great place to plant a church? And indeed, that's exactly what happened. Some 40 years earlier, Paul went to Ephesus and helped to start this church. And now this church is in its second generation, not completely unsimilar to Trinity. One thing that was very different from Trinity, this church had had significant. Pastoral attention given to it. Paul, Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos, Timothy, and then the Apostle John himself had all been leaders and preachers and servants in that church. Now, as the current pastor of Trinity, and with one of the previous pastors of Trinity here today, I can say with some confidence... That would be one way that this is a different church than Trinity. Paul wrote a significant letter to these people. We have it in our Bibles. It's called Ephesians. We've spent some time looking at that book recently and we've seen how Paul wrote this rich, deep, Theological truth to these people that he loved and cared for so much and that he also had this down to earth practical application that he gave them of how to live out the gospel in their life and in the city of Ephesus. We read in Acts chapter 20 about a meeting that took place as Paul was getting ready to leave the church. He gathered together the elders of Ephesus And expressed his deep love and trust to them and warned them to be careful and to watch out for false wolves that would try to come in and devour the people of the church of Ephesus. This was a great, significant, and influential church. And Jesus has something to say to them. He addresses them. And he tells them what they were doing well. And then he also brings them a complaint that he has against them. And then he tells them... This is how you should respond, and he reminds them of the hope that they should have. Let's look at those four things this morning. First of all, what does he tell them about what they were doing well? Notice in verse 2, he reminds them that he knows them. You remember last week we talked about this vision of Jesus as John looks, he sees the Son of Man, Jesus himself, And in this vision that he has, he sees Jesus in the midst of the lampstands. And and we're told later in chapter 1 that those lampstands represent the church. And so we talked last week about the fact that Jesus is in the midst of his churches. And that's what he reminds them again in verse 1. I'm the one who holds the seven stars in my right hand and I walk among the seven golden lampstands. I am in your midst. I may not be in your presence physically, but spiritually I am with you. And I, he says to the church in Ephesus, I know you. I know you. He knew the good things that they were doing. He knew the reasons why they should be encouraged as a church. And what does he say? Verse 2. I know your toil. That word literally means hard labor or hard work. These were people that Paul had written to in this letter to the Ephesians. And in chapter 2, verse 10, he told them that we are God's workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And these people who had that letter in their midst took that to heart, This church was a church full of diligent, hard-working people who were serving the Lord. They were doing a good job of walking in the good works that God had prepared for them. They were serving. They were involved in various ministry. They were doing evangelism. They were ministering to the widows and to the orphans and then to the poor in their community. And John in reflecting on what this church was like, said, It was a beehive of ministry activity. Not only does he commend, does Jesus commend them for being hardworking. He also commends them for their patient endurance. That's what he says in verses two and three. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Verse three. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. These were a people who in the face of persecution and threats and troubles were filled with patient endurance. They they did not grow weary. They did not become cynical. They did not despair or doubt of God's goodness or grace. In the face of a pagan culture, in the face of idolatry and the pressure to worship the Roman emperor, they didn't give in. They didn't give up and they didn't start fighting with each other. They were steadfast. They were faithfully persevering and patiently holding fast. They were hardworking. They were patiently enduring. And he also commends them for being vigilant for truth. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and... How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. And then in verse six, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. These people were people who believed that the word of God was true and that they held to it without compromise. They did a good job of discerning between true and false teachers, and they had no tolerance for false teaching, for doctrinal imprecision, or for moral compromise. They knew the truth, they knew the theology, and they remained steadfast and diligent in holding to it strictly. Paul had warned the Ephesian elders years before that they had to watch out for false teachers, for for wolves in sheep's clothing that would come in and try to to ravage the people. And they took that to heart. Paul references Nicolaitans, and we know almost nothing about them. They're they're referenced in one of the other churches that we'll get to in a few weeks. And then there's maybe one reference to them outside of uh, the Bible. But we know almost nothing about who these people were, except for the fact that they were spreading false doctrine. And there's some belief that what they were teaching was that it was okay as a professing believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to compromise morally with the pagan culture, to give in and to participate in things that were immoral and not according to God's word. And John looks at them and says, you saw them you rooted them out you would not listen to them you would not give in to their false teaching you are rock solid in knowing the truth of the word and your theology and doctrinal orthodoxy and you are well prepared to defend it this is his commendation to them they are hard working people they are patiently enduring and they are vigilant for the truth that must have been encouraging to hear The Savior Himself commended them, acknowledged that He knew these good things that they were doing. And before we move on, just a quick good reminder for us. Even if no one sees your good good deeds and your, your faithfulness, even if no one notices how you are patiently enduring and hardworking and being vigilant for the truth, even if nobody sees that, you can know that Jesus does. He knows his church. He knows his people. A pastor friend of mine put it this way. There is not a drop of sweat spent in Christ's service that he does not see and prize and celebrate. There is not a tear shed in his cause that he does not cherish and value. Be encouraged. Jesus knows you. He knows that which you are doing that is for his Glory, But Jesus also had a complaint that He brought against them. We get that at the beginning of verse 4. But this, I have this against you. Those are some pretty scary words. Jesus Himself comes to this church and says, there are some wonderful things that are happening in your midst, but I've got something against you. It's not just that your brother or your sister in Christ has something against you. Your Savior, the ruling and reigning King Jesus, has something against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. What does that mean? They had abandoned the love that they had at first. When they first believed. When they first trusted in Christ. That love that they had, the love that exhibited, that was exhibited in their hearts and their minds and their lives, that, that love has been abandoned, he says. And that word in the Greek means to let go of or descend off or descend away. It's actually used in the ancient culture as a technical term for divorce. They've abandoned the love they had at first. And the commentators debate. Is he referring to the love that they had for Jesus at first? Or the love that they had for one another and their neighbors at first? And the answer, of course, is yes. Because those two things are connected. Isn't that what John told us in 1 John chapter 4 that we read earlier? We love because God loved us. We love God because we love one another. They are connected they go together, they are linked. To abandon one leads to the abandonment of the other. This is, a, this is a good church that is being written to. There is lots of ministry and service. They are firm in the face of persecution. They are doctrinally and morally sound and strong. But they weren't loving. Their love for Jesus had faded. Maybe they were going through the motions now. Their Christian faith was just a matter of going through the rituals. But their hearts weren't in it. And their love and their care and their concern and their, their service for others had become stale. I wonder if we can relate. I have no doubt that if Jesus wrote a letter to Trinity Presbyterian Church, He could commend us in similar ways as He did the Ephesus Presbyterian Church. We have a lot of hard-working, diligent, ministry-involved people. We have a church that is full of people who are patiently enduring all sorts of trials and troubles. We have a church full of people who have a robust earnestness and intention of being rock-solid on truth. Self-consciously biblical and reformed. The question is... Would Jesus also commend us for our love? Our love for Him and our love for our neighbors. And I will tell you that I think in many ways He would. One of the things that I hear over and over again from people who visit our church is how loving and caring and warm and welcoming you are. And I have no doubt that Jesus would commend us for that loving spirit that is generated because we love the Lord Jesus. But as we look at these words written to this church in the first century, it is also an opportunity for us to reflect on the way that our love fades and grows tired. And we have to do that because... The consequence of not doing that is pretty serious. I mean, what does Jesus say? How serious was this problem? He gets at it at the end of verse 5. If not, if you don't repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This was an extremely serious problem in the mind of Jesus. We know it's serious because He's bringing the complaint to them. You can imagine that this church must have thought and everything that was happening in this incredibly crucial city uh, and the incredible, uh, important time for the expansion of the gospel. You can imagine this church probably thought, well, Jesus can't do without us, can he? And Jesus says, oh, yes, I can. They were at the risk of having their light, their witness, their lampstand being removed and being turned into a shadow, a ghost of a church. This really shouldn't be that surprising to us because Paul said something very similar to a different church that wasn't too far away from this church in Ephesus, the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I could have faith that could move a mountain, literally. I could be wealthy and generous and give away everything that I have. I could be one of God's people serving Him. And yet, if I don't have love, Paul says, I am nothing. Francis Schaeffer said it as well. In the 20th century, he wrote a little book called The Mark of a Christian. It's a short book, but arguably one of his most important works. It's been published five different times, and twice Christianity Today has published various parts of it in their magazine. And Schaeffer's contention was this, the greatest mark of a Christian is love. Christian love. Love of the Lord and love of one another. He went so far as to say that Christians loving each other was the greatest apologetic for Christianity in the world. And I wonder if we really believe that. Do we really think that that's possible? That the greatest apologetic is for people, the world, to see Christians loving one another. And of course, loving the Lord as well, Jesus clearly thought it was important. He tells them you have lots of good things going on in your life, but if you're lacking love, I'm not okay with you. There can be some really great and encouraging things happening at Trinity Presbyterian Church, and there are. We can be a beehive of meaningful ministry both inside and outside of our church. We can be known for standing firm in the face of persecution and troubles. We can be doctrinally solid and thoroughly reformed in our beliefs. We can know our Bibles inside and out. We can be known in the city of Rochester for being a great church. But if we do not love Jesus and love one another and love our neighbors, then it is all for nothing. And we, are, we would be in danger of being wiped off the map, being removed from having the privilege and the blessing of reaching people with the gospel and equipping them to serve. That's true for us as a church. It's true for us as individual believers as well. So, what can we do? What can we do if... You, like me, can see ways that the love that we have had for our Savior at the first and the love that we have for others for the first has waned, has faded, has become stale. What can we do? What can we do to get it back? Well, thankfully, Jesus told them. And it's easy to miss because it's just in a half of a verse. The beginning of verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. Three imperative verbs. Remember, repent and return. That that's what Jesus says. That's the prescription for getting back into our first love, to the love that we had At first, he says, remember, remember from where you had fallen, remember what it used to be like, remember what you used to be like when you truly were in love with your savior, when you truly loved your neighbors. Think back to when the grace of the gospel so gripped your heart and your mind that you were moved to tears, that your heart was made full with love and devotion for your savior. Think back to when your love for the Lord was so real that it spilled out into loving your neighbors and putting others before yourself. Remember back to that time when gathering together with God's people to worship Him together was the highlight of your week. Remember back to that time when the Word of God was so Precious and so important to you and meaningful to you that you went out of your way to intentionally carve out time to spend time reading it. That's the first step, Jesus says. Remember back to what it was like. But then he says, repent. And if you know anything about that word in the original language, it's not primarily a feeling word. It's a doing word. The the word here literally means to change your mind, to change your purpose, to change your direction, to turn around and change course. Of course, part of what repentance looks like is a sorrow for our sin. But first and foremost, it is a changing of direction. It is a recognition of what we used to be like and a desire to go back to that place. And so we leave where we are and we go in that place. It's an acknowledgement, a confession to the Lord of our lack of love. And then it is an active rooting out the things in our lives that are keeping us from loving well. And it is actively doing the things that nurture and cultivate and foster love for the Lord and for others. That's the reason why he says, not only do you remember and repent, but you also return. Do the works that you did at first, he says. That's the third step in this process that he outlines. Go back and do the things that help nurture and cultivate and foster a love for the Lord and a love for others. Even if you don't feel like it at first. Make use of the means of grace. Being together with God's people regularly for worship. Spending time in the word. Spending time praying. Fellowshiping with your fellow believers in Christ. Return again and again and again to the message of the gospel of grace and the sweetness and the beauty of God's grace for you in Christ. Immerse yourself in the truth of God's love for you and meditate on it. Understand the depth of your sin and believe in the greater depth of God's grace and mercy that covers all of our sin and declares us righteous. These are the steps that Jesus outlined. This is how we get back to what we've abandoned. Remember, repent. In return, And as we do those things, notice his last words to this church were a reminder of the hope that the, that is theirs as they would seek to do these things. What does he say to them in verse seven? He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to the one who conquers. I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Which is in the paradise of God. The one who conquers. He's talking about the one who remembers and repents and returns. Who overcomes a lack of love for the Lord and for others through the work of the Holy Spirit. One who perseveres in truth and love. One who hears Jesus' complaint and confesses their sin. Changing directions and holding fast to the truth of the gospel of grace. And pursuing acts of love. And what does he say is your hope, if that's you this morning. Your hope is nothing less than you will be able to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. John's, of course, referring back to Genesis 1 and 2. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were in the garden there with the tree of life. And before the fall, they were in perfect communion and fellowship with God. And what Jesus is saying here to the people and to us as well is that through Him, through faith in Him, we once again are in fellowship and communion with God Almighty. And John will end this book where the book of Genesis began, where we read about the tree of life and the fellowship and the communion of God and His people at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. John will end the book reminding us of what is coming, of being in heaven with our Father in Heaven in communion and fellowship and the tree of life is there once again. That's the hope that they should have. On the evening of June 17th, 2015, 12 people gathered together for a prayer service at the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. About 9 o'clock that night, as they were together praying, a 21-year-old man named Dylan Roof walked in to the prayer meeting and began shooting the people as they were praying. He walked into a 203-year-old African-American church and began killing. He killed nine, including the senior pastor. Three people survived and Rufe escaped. The next morning he was arrested 245 miles away and he immediately and unashamedly confessed to the shooting and the killing of the nine people and injuring of the three others. Roof, who is a self-proclaimed white supremacist, said that he did it intentionally in order to try to start a race war between African Americans and white people. About a year and a half later, in December of 2016, Roof was convicted of 33 federal hate crimes and murder charges, and he was sentenced to death. About six months, about four or five months later, in April of 2017, he was separately convicted by the state of South Carolina for his nine charges of murder and given life in prison without parole. And as far as I know, he's sitting, awaiting his execution, remaining unrepentant. But here's the thing. After he was arrested and before his trial, Roof was given a bond hearing. And several of the families of the victims attended that bond hearing. And the judge gave the families a chance to speak directly to Roof. These were Christians who days before had lost family members, and friends, and church members, because the person on the other side of the glass that they were getting ready to address, one of them dead because of the skin color. And they looked at Ruth, and they told him, we don't hate you, we forgive you. Now I would ask you, how in the world... Can somebody say something like that? The only thing that I know of that gives power like that is the gospel. These were people who believed the truth of Scripture and on it without compromise they believed what it said about themselves and their own sin and the fact that God loved them in Christ and that he sent his son to die for them they believed the truth of what first John four says that if God has so loved us we should love others. They believed what Jesus himself said, that the greatest commandment is to love God with all of who we are, and the second is like it, to love our neighbors as ourselves. They expressed that truth by forgiving and loving even someone like Dylan Roof. What's more important? Truth or love? Both are necessary and essential. So let's be a church that steadfastly pursues both without compromise. Let's pray together. Father, I'm sure that if we're honest... Very few of us in this room would ever want a letter that you would write to us to be recorded in Holy Scripture so that your people forever would be able to know what was going on, the complaints that you might bring to us. But we're so thankful that in your providence, you caused this message that was given to the church in Ephesus in the first century to be written down so that we could have it. Thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. I pray, Father, that you would give us the strength to stand on it without compromise. That we, too, might model these wonderful things that we've seen in this church in Ephesus. But we pray, Father, too, that you would cause us to be reflective in the ways that we, like them, have abandoned the love that we had at first for you and for one another. We pray, Father, that you would do this because we want to glorify you and we want to be a blessing to this world. So do this for your glory, but also for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In his letter to the Corinthian church, Paul gave some instructions about the Lord's Supper. And he said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. As we come to the Lord's Supper and conclude our service today, we're confronted with both the truth and the love of our God. The truth that we have to acknowledge to come to this table is that we are sinners and that we need a Savior. If we don't believe that, then what we are remembering and celebrating here makes no sense. This is the Lord's body and the Lord's blood represented to us. That he had to go to the cross to pay for our sins and that he did so willingly. Shedding his blood and giving his body for us. But it's also a confrontation, if you will, this morning of the love of God. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us that one who was rich beyond all splendor for our sake became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. Uh, The wonder of God's truth that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that we can only have that salvation through Jesus alone and the wonders of his grace and love to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. So to come to this table this morning, we have to believe both. The truth and the love of God. If you are here this morning and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are trusting in Him for your salvation, and you have publicly professed that faith, recognizing your need for a Savior, your need to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, His death being for your sins, and you've publicly professed that faith by joining yourself, connecting yourself, being baptized into a church that believes and teaches the Word of God is true. And the gospel by grace in Christ alone. Then as the elements are coming around, eat and drink and be reminded of these wonderful truths that we read in the, in the word. And also be encouraged to know that as you come by faith, the Holy Spirit is at work taking this very simple thing that we're doing and strengthening our faith. So that as we go out, we might truly be people who stand uncompromisingly on the truth and the love of God. Let's pause for a moment and thank Him for giving us this means of grace. Our Father in Heaven, we do thank You for the Lord's Supper. We thank You for giving us the sacrament of the church. We are encouraged as we are reminded of our Savior. We are encouraged as we're reminded that as we come to You in faith, You send the Holy Spirit to take what we're doing and give. Give us strength in our faith so that we can live for you in even greater ways this week. Would you do that, please? Help us, Father. Help us to love you and to love our neighbors well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.